You're listening to Saturdays with Emma right here on BBS Radio Channel One. Now here's Emma. Hey guys, this is Emma and we are live on Saturday afternoon, morning or evening, depending on where you're at. Uh, it's kind of overcast here in southern Indiana where I am currently sending out good vibrations to everybody. We have got a wonderful show, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show. A friend of mine, I've known him for a while, he's been on uh, my show many times before, well, yeah, a few times before. Makes me sound old if I say many. <laughs> and uh, he is an author. He is a novelist. He is a lawyer by day, an author by night, and a John F. Kennedy assassination junkie the rest of the time. I am speaking of Jack Duffy from Dallas, Texas. If anybody has questions, want to talk to Jack, feel free. Call in at 888-627-6008, and you can ask Jack pretty much anything you want. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he'll, he'll you know, let you know if it's something that he doesn't want to answer, but uh, he's pretty good at answering questions, you know, since he's a lawyer. He likes to talk more than I do. So <laughs> he, uh, as I said, is a lawyer. And author and JFK guy. His books include Black Mamba and The Man from 2063, along with a few more I hear he's working on. He, he has many irons in the fire. And so a lot of stuff to cover today. We're just going to jump right in. Hey, Jack, how are you? Are you there? Yeah, just have one correction. I'm from Fort Worth, so that's okay. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> Heaven forbid we get that. I thought they were like connected or something, isn't it? Like the Dallas Fort Worth area. Right. Right. Okay. Fort Worth and Dallas are totally separate, yeah, cities. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, excuse me, Mr. Mr. Jack. Um so I understand that you have a new book coming out, Black Mamba. And um this is pretty cool. You sent me a little excerpt from it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this little ex this little part from it and um then we're going to talk about it so everybody just just hang in there with me all right this is a cool book it's kind of like a james bond 007 type of thing and um the main there's two uh main characters and there's cia agents that's trying to uh knock out some bad guys, some terrorists. Um, so this is pretty cool. Uh, the main character is Clint Connor, and uh, the uh, partner of his is an American-born Russian named Nikolai Alexandrov. I hope I said that right. Okay, here's, here's from the book. Clint Connor was standing near the south rim of the Grand Canyon. There was no one else around. He was there to meet another CIA agent. When a man walked up in casual clothes, wearing sunglasses, and he comes up to him and he takes off his sunglasses and says, Dr. Connor, it is an honor to meet you. I am Amal Kamish. The director ordered me to meet you here. Connor had never really met Tamish. He had been killed by the terrorist that's impersonating him now. The impersonator pulled the CIA agent's ID badge out of his pocket. But the badge didn't have a photo on it, 
and the terrorist had a suicide vest on under his clothes, and he could detonate it with a cell phone. The assassin had to only dial not zero 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 to activate it. He had the phone in his jacket pocket. When the men started talking, Connor became suspicious of the man. His mannerism seemed unusual. He knew the real Tim Kesh had met Alexandrov at the top secret meeting briefing. Connor said, you have the same brown eyes as Nikolai has. Very piercing. The imposter replied, thank you. Connor knew instantly the man was a fraud. He said, since you met Nikolai recently at CIA headquarters, you should know he has blue eyes. The assassin reached for his phone to detonate his vest, and Connor quickly grabbed his arm before the man could reach the phone. They began fighting near the canyon's edge. Connor yelled, who are you? Who sent you? The terrorist yelled, you are a dead man, Connor. Connor broke the killer's right arm, and he flipped the imposter with a judo throw. The terrorist fell over the edge to his death as the vest exploded when he hit the bottom. That, my friends, is from Black Mamba. What do you think, Jack? Did I do yeah, it justice? Yeah. Mr. <laughs> uh, Dr. Connor, he's a Ph.D. in my book. He's not a medical doctor. He's got a Ph.D. in nuclear physics, uh, a Navy SEAL. Uh, he's, he's sort of like an American James Bond figure is who I based him on. Um, he has a code number like 007, but I don't want to give it away yet until the book comes out. Uh, and then ah. he and the uh, partner, Alexandrov, are fighting this massive terrorist organization that evolves early in the book called Black Mamba. It's named after the African snake that's the deadly poisonous snake that kills you in 10 minutes when you get bit by it. Um, the organization <laughs> is an acronym. I won't tell everybody what it stands for, but it's an actual acronym. Each letter stands for something in the in the title of the organization. Ah, in the terrorist organization. Wow. Yes. This is pretty cool. I mean, where do you come up with all this stuff? I mean, it, does it just float <laughs> around in your head? <laughs> well, I got the idea for this book because I'm a big fan of James Bond. When I was growing up as a child in Fort Worth, uh, I went to all the, the early Sean Connery Bond movies and loved them all. I still like uh -huh. them today. And I like the show The Man from Uncle, which was very popular back at that time on television. And right. for those who remember the show, that was based on two uh, fictional agents, one an American and one an actual Russian. Uh, that's where I got the idea for a Russian-American partnership on this book. So those two, the shows and the Bond movies, inspired me to write this particular book. So that's why I did it. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Well, um, last night we were chatting on on Facebook, and I was watching one of the 007 movies, uh, I think Tomorrow Never Dies, with Pierce Brosnan. But, you know, I know I know that you, you Sean Connery is like James Bond no matter what. And, uh, but I mean, like I told you, Pierce Brosnan and doing a pinch, <laughs> I'll take him sure. in a pinch. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. So, um, what kind of superpowers does, does Clint, uh, and, uh, his partner have, I mean, do they have like secret, uh, well, guns or uh, anything like, I mean, or yeah, am I giving too much away? No, no, they both speak like 10 languages fluently in the book, which is probably unrealistic, but who knows. Right. Uh, they're black belts in multiple martial arts. Uh, they were selected, in the book, they're select, selected out over 500 candidates to join this new subsection of the CIA called SWIFT, which for all I know, there may be something like that in the real CIA, but in my book, it's called SWIFT. It's an acronym for Special Warfare Intelligence Fighting Terrorism. Uh, so they're recruited by the president and the military to come in and 
uh, to this new organization that's going to fight terrorists. And mm-hmm. the only two agents that are brought into it at first, and then other agents are brought in to help them out throughout the book. Um, Black Mama starts out early in the book. Uh, there's a guy who's a billionaire who's on, a, who's on an island. He owns his own island. He's a recluse. He's an American who turns on the United States, and he starts cultivating terrorists to come in and join up with him. And he ends up building this massive terrorist organization that forces all the terrorists in the world to basically unite with them or get crushed. So they become like the massive terror organization in the entire world that controls all the terrorists in the entire world, which probably isn't believable or realistic at that point because I don't think that would ever happen. But from an official standpoint, I thought it would be kind of cool if we had an organization oh, that yeah. became that powerful. Oh, that would be cool. Well, who knows? We probably do, and nobody knows about it. <laughs> So <laughs> you never know. You never know. Now you have um, also. So when is this book supposed to be coming out? Uh, it's being edited right now, so I'm hoping to get it out maybe by late summer or early fall this year. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. So um, you have another book that you sent me. Uh, it's called The Man from 2063. That's more about the. Uh, what if JFK had lived type of thing, right? Right. It's a time travel book. Uh, Stephen King kind of stole my thunder on that. It's, he wrote a book about a guy who goes back in time and, you know, tries to change yeah. the assassination. And I didn't know he was writing his book. And when I wrote mine, and I don't think he knew anything about me, obviously. But uh, my book's different, though. It's about a guy who's a lawyer who's kind of based on me. Who, uh, uh-huh. Year 2063, which is 100 years after the assassination, he finds out about a time machine that's been developed of the United States, and he goes back in time and tries to find out what really happened to President Kennedy. And throughout the book, I show how the conspiracy was formed, how I think it was formed, uh, based on a lot of hard evidence. And I put a fictional story based on that about these guys that plan to kill the president, why they want to kill him. And the hero goes back and uh, disrupts the assassination because he knows it's going to happen, and he convinces the authorities, you know, that Kennedy's going to get shot if they don't stop the motorcade right before he gets to the plaza. And I don't want to spoil the whole book, but basically the Kennedy doesn't get killed. Uh, he survives, and then they find out who was behind it. Uh, the mastermind starts killing off the co-conspirators to cover himself. And then uh, the book ends up with the Vietnam War being changed because Kennedy lives and doesn't go into Vietnam. So there's no Vietnam Memorial at the end. It's kind of sad about you know, what could have been, what might have been. Uh, but the main point mm-hmm. of the book is to show that there was a conspiracy that got away with it, and this guy goes back and changes everything. Oh, wow. That would be cool if there was really somebody that could do that, you know, because I I think that um, the country and the world would be better if JFK was here. And just, you know, disclosure, I'm not a Democrat, but he's the only Democrat I ever liked (laughs) (laughs) as far as politicians go, you know. So, um, but yeah, this is this is a pretty cool book. you know, that you have, you have come up with. So I like them both. They are awesome, awesome books. And, um, I let some of my coworkers read the, the man from 2063 and, and they just loved it. They said, when's he going to make another one? When's he going to write another one about this? So, you know, you're, you're pretty popular around my neck of the woods there, Jack. That's great. I appreciate that. Well, you are more than welcome, my friend. So, um, let's see. I'm reading my little notes here. So, we're going to go ahead and take a break. And then when we come back, 
this, you know, man from 2063 kind of is going to lead us into what happened on November 1963. So uh, you're listening to uh, Saturdays with Emma right here on BBS Radio. And my guest this week is Jack Duffy. So stick around, guys. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is Emma, and you're listening to Saturdays with Emma right here on BBS Radio. And my guest this week is lawyer, author, and John F. Kennedy assassination guy, Jack Duffy. How you doing, Mr. Jack? Doing great. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we started out the show with, the, he's, he's like I said, Jackson author, and we talked a little bit about his books. And um, now we're going to delve into uh, the uh, John F. Kennedy assassination. And, I mean, this is something that almost, you know, everyone knows about uh, or has read about or has heard about. It's, it's the shot heard around the world, I guess, in the 20th century. And uh, John F. Kennedy, for those of you younger that don't know, he was the 35th president of the United States. He was also the youngest president. He was taking over for uh, Eisenhower, who was the oldest president. And uh, Jack, he he had a lot of uh, things going on and a lot of people, you know, he'd been a senator. He'd been a congressman. He uh, was in the Navy. Um, so... Fast forwarding ahead, he's president. He's been president for just you know a little bit of time, about a year or so, uh, about a year and a half, maybe I guess, almost two. And um, he's he needs he's working on reelection. Uh, his people, his handlers, say you know you need to you need to go down and and sure up the South, you know Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, Mississippi, all them. Uh, so let's do a little tour. Uh, president was down in Jack's neck of the woods at uh, Fort Worth. He uh, spoke at a uh, uh, hotel there, I believe, and that was his last speech. So Jack, let's set the scene with the president. He's he's done the speech at uh, Fort Worth at the at the uh, hotel or the convention center right there that morning. Uh, they went to the airport. They got on the plane. They landed in Dallas at Love Field. They're in the car. They're they're on their way to uh, the trademark. Uh, pick it up from there. So let's, let's, I mean, there's all kinds of characters. There's JFK, Lyndon Johnson, Oswald, Jackie Kennedy, Governor and right. Mrs. Connolly. You know, let, let's pick it up from there. Well, the president uh, was killed or right at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time in Dealey Plaza, which is a small area right near the downtown area of Dallas. Uh, Oswald was a, an employee of the book depository at the time and uh, was arrested shortly after that for killing an officer named uh, J.D. Tippett in Oak Cliff, which was uh, over in another part of Dallas. Uh, so Oswald wasn't arrested for killing Kennedy. He was arrested for killing a police officer originally. And then they tied him into Kennedy later that afternoon when they started finding the rifle that was on the sixth floor. They linked it back to Oswald. And, all, of course, I think all this was set up ahead of time by the people that really killed Kennedy to have Oswald you know, be caught and be arrested and be charged with everything. And then, of course, as everybody knows, Oswald lived only two days, and then he was killed on national television Sunday morning about 1120 Central Standard Time by a guy named Jack Ruby, who was a known organized crime figure and ran a nightclub, a series of nightclubs in Dallas, uh, he was a hanger-on, knew all the police officers in Dallas. Everybody knew who Ruby was. All the cops did. Uh, and Ruby kills Oswald, uh, out of, supposedly because he's mad because he had killed the president, which is the, the storyline. 
Um, so that's basically the, what everybody knows happened. And then after that, the Warren Commission was uh, created by Lyndon Johnson a week later to investigate the whole assassination. And then they came back with a report in September of 64 and said that there was no conspiracy. It was Lee Harvey Oswald, and that was it, until the uh, House committee reopened the case in the 70s. Uh, and then they came to a different conclusion, said there was a conspiracy, that Oswald was still the shooter, but there was another shooter on the grassy you know, that missed the car completely, which is ridiculous. But they did say there was a conspiracy finally. And that's where the case has been since the 70s. So what caused the uh, uh, commission to form in the 70s? Was, did somebody just say, hey, let's see what uh, really happened? Or What caused it was Robert Groden, who's a friend of mine, who's one of the top researchers in the world, photo uh-huh. analyst. He put the Zapruder film on Geraldo Rivera's show in March of 1975 for the first time. It was ever sh- first time mm-hmm. it was ever shown on television. The film had been locked up by Time Life magazine for uh, over a decade. Uh, Jim Garrison had gotten a hold of it when he did his trial in New Orleans, forced him to release the film, and he showed the film in the courtroom in New Orleans, and then other people started making copies of it. But it was never actually shown on TV until Groden put it on Rivera's show. Uh, yeah. When that happened, uh, it shocked everybody because nobody had seen it before. And, of course, as everybody knows, it shows President Kennedy's head reacting to a shot from the right front because his head goes back into the left from the shot. And right. that film is what caused the creation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. That one film did it. Uh, and then from that point forward, they start reinvestigating the whole case all over again. Oh, wow. So did they have to get permission from the Kennedy family to do this, or was it just more of a, no, no, a legal stand? Congress just act of created Congress. the committee. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, so it was created by Congress. To look, they also looked into the Martin Luther King assassination. It was JFK and Martin uh-huh. Luther King. They investigated both of those cases together. Um, so that's how it was created. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it just amazes me that somebody had the, the nerve or the, you know, Kajangas, if you might say, to to shoot a president in broad daylight with how many millions of people, you know, or thousands of people watching. That's just crazy. So um, now I know that there I had heard and I had read some different things that, you know, on the Internet, which you can never, you know, totally judge. But um, some some accounts say that uh, Lyndon Johnson might have been the one that that called for the assassination. Do you? What do you think about that? Do you? Because you know that he didn't get along with Bobby at all. Him and Bobby hated each other. The pres, you know, right. the the, you know, um, he was he was not close to really any of a, of Kennedy's staff either. So, do you think maybe Johnson had something to do with it or not? I do believe he knew it was going to happen ahead of time. I don't know if he was the mastermind, but I do believe Johnson was part of the conspiracy. Uh, and the reason why is because he had the most to gain from this. Uh, he was one of the main people that promoted the idea of a, of a motorcade through uh, Dallas and through, through some other Texas cities for Kennedy in an open car. Um, Johnson wanted to be president worse than anything. He knew that if he, if he, if Kennedy lived, he was never going to be president because he'd never get elected on his own. Um, right. That's 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 one of the theories. Now, what role he played in it? He helped create the Warren Commission, which was a cover up, as we know. That's been discredited completely over the last fifty plus years. Um, that was done to hush the whole thing up. Oswald was dead and couldn't defend himself, so they decided we'll just have a blue ribbon commission, you know, pinning on him. Now, I do want to get into some other things that other people being involved in, but Johnson was on the, you know, he was one of the minor players as far as I'm concerned. He wasn't the mastermind that came up with the idea. I think he went along with it though. Yeah. Wow. So, um, 
you know, and, and John Connolly, you know, was in the, in the car with the president, you know, and he sat lower than the president. Um, and there was a, a statement that he had given uh, on, on television, John Connolly did, that he said, they're going to kill us all in an interview that he gave in his hospital room while he was still, you know, just not long out after surgery. And his wife, uh, Nellie, also, you know, wasn't, wasn't convinced that there wasn't more than one shooter. Um, so when the president was shot, I mean, the, the magic bullet, everybody knows about this magic bullet. And, um, you know, there's just... I, there's just no way that it could turn 20 somersaults and come up, end up in what Connolly's thigh when it found or supposed to went through his thigh and landed, you know, in pristine right. condition. Right. Well, the, the original theory was came up with by our inspector, who was a general counsel for the Warren Commission. He's down deceased. He was a former senator from Pennsylvania. Inspector came up with this crazy theory because they had to force, uh, they had had a way to force three shots to. They had to count for three shots somehow. And one shot mm-hmm. hit Kennedy in the head, one hit Connolly or Kennedy or both, and then one shot missed the car completely and hit a curb and struck a guy named James Tague, who I knew and who's passed away, but he was an eyewitness. So they knew mm-hmm. there were at least three shots. There were three shells that were found on the sixth floor, so they had to match up three bullets somehow. Well, if Kennedy and Connolly were hit by separate bullets, that meant there were four shots or another shooter. Right. So they couldn't have that. So the only way to make it work was to have one bullet hit both men. And then that was the creation of the single bullet theory, which is ridiculous in my opinion. Uh, Sarah Weck, who's been on your show before, has yeah. an exhibit that the Warren Commission put together that he always uses to show why this is impossible. It's an exhibit that shows they did a test with Oswald ammunition with the same kind of rifle he's supposed to use at a, the Armed Forces Institute. They fired a Mannlicher Carcano bullet into cotton wadding. They fired one into a goat carcass because one of Conley's ribs was hit by the bullet. And then they fired a bullet into a cadaver's wrist because the bullet went through Conley's wrist to simulate that. Right. It's interesting what the results were. The, the bullet that went into cotton wadding is more deformed than the one that went through Kennedy and Conley list, which is ridiculous. hard to believe. The bullet that hit the goat carcass is even more deformed. And the one that hit the cadaver's wrist is mushroomed out and flattened completely out, which you would expect if the bullet actually went through a, a, a dense bone like John Conley. So Dr. Weck always says when somebody wants to say Oswald did it, he said, well, show me a bullet anywhere in the world that has done this and I'll shut up. And, of course, right. nobody's ever been able to do that. No, no. So that kind of leads us to the to the medical evidence and the, and the hospital when, when, you know, the president got there. You know, everybody went into, you know, hyper let's fix him mode and, or, you know, let's save him mode. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, medical evidence or, sure. you know, supposedly. There were, 20, there, were, there were over 20 doctors that treated President Kennedy and John Conley that afternoon. Uh, I've met two of them personally, got to be very, very good friends with Dr. McClellan and Dr. Crenshaw. Unfortunately, both of them are deceased now. But I also saw interviews with all the other doctors that were done over the years. And every single doctor said that there was a big exit wound in the back of President Kennedy's head when they treated him at Parkland Hospital. They, they knew the shot had come from the front because only a frontal shot would cause a huge exit wound coming out the rear of the head. Uh, right. That puzzled them because... There were already reports, you know, later on that the shot had come from the rear from Oswald. Uh, there was also a bullet hole in his neck uh, that they did a tracheotomy on. Uh, Malcolm Perry, who I never got to meet, uh, did the tracheotomy on Kennedy. He's testified that the bullet hole, in his opinion, was an entrance wound. It was too small to be an exit wound. He said it was a puncture-like wound right in Kennedy's throat, which means another shot came from the front and hit him in the throat, if he's correct. 
Then later on, he was put under pressure by the media and by the Warren Commission to change his story because that didn't fit the narrative. So he finally just changed his mind just to get him off his back, but he never really did change his opinion secretly deep down. He always thought it was a frontal shot. So the medical evidence in Dallas, if they're correct, and the doctors have no reason to lie about this, they had no no dog in the hunt. They right. see you know they see people all the time getting shot, and Dr. Cullen had the best view of this. He was standing over President Kennedy's head the whole time they worked on, so he was looking at Kennedy's head for 30 minutes. And he said there was cerebellum coming out of the back of Kennedy's head, which is right at the base of the brain. And only that could have been caused by a right frontal shot from coming in from the grassy knoll. So what's interesting about this is that a week after the assassination, all the doctors were put in a room in Parkland. Uh, this is what Dr. McClellan and Crenshaw told me. They all were brought down into a room, and two agents from the FBI had come down from Washington. Jared Hoover had sent them down. This is only a week after the Kennedy had died. And they told all the doctors who were young guys, they were all in their early 30s starting their careers out, they told the doctors they were not to discuss the medical evidence at all or their career would be ruined and it'd be over with. And they all looked at each other like, okay, and uh, they thought, why are you threatening this? You know, why, is this why are you scared of what, we, what we're going to say? And they, they both told me they think that was the beginning of the cover-up, that they, they had to put a gag order on all these doctors or else they were going to start talking about it to the media. So for years and years, they all shut up because they didn't want their career ruined. And then only later on when they're about to retire, they start coming out with the truth. Yeah, um, I had seen a, a interview with um, the two doctors that you had had mentioned. And, you know, that, that's what they said. You know, it was, it was when they were older and, and retired um, that it had to have come the shot that, you know, had to have come from the front because there's just no way. And the bat, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. So, um, now, so do you think maybe like the CIA had something to do with it? Maybe as well, you know, like, like Johnson might've put a bug in their ear or. Well, the people, I think people inside the CIA had a motive for getting rid of Kennedy for several reasons. Number one, they were very upset with him about the Bay of Pigs, the way that turned out. And they're the ones that planned the whole thing, but they blamed right. Kennedy for not for not succeeding. Kennedy blamed the CIA and told, in fact, Kennedy warned that he was going to uh, destroy the CIA in terms of splitting them into a thousand pieces and reorganize mm-hmm. them. And that was a that was a dangerous threat to the people high up in the CIA. They were scared to death that Kennedy was going to, you know, reorganize everything, yeah, replace all of them. So also the Vietnam War was a big issue because Kennedy told his closest confidants, uh, Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, that he was going to withdraw us from South Vietnam in 1964 or begin a, a, a gradual withdrawal. That's mm-hmm. on record. I mean, that's been documented. Uh, and then right after he was killed, LBJ reversed everything and went right into Vietnam full force. So the theory, one of the theories is that Kennedy was killed to keep us from being pulled out of Vietnam, which I agree with. Uh, also, the mafia had reasons to get rid of Kennedy because of his brother, Robert, who's the attorney general. Robert was going after organized crime uh, like nobody had ever done before. He was oh, prosecuting yeah. mafia leaders and putting them in prison. Uh, Carlos Marcello, he kicked him out of the United States and sent him to Guatemala and deported, which made Marcello really mad. Uh, Sam Giancano uh, hated Kennedy. So did uh, Traficante. There were several mafia leaders that had a motive to, to kill John F. Kennedy. They were already working with the CIA in the early 60s to try to kill Castro, so there was already that alliance already set up between the two organizations. They're both like one side of the same coin, basically. Um, So I believe that organized crime figures, along with CIA figures and anti-Castro people, I'll get into a reason why I'm anti-Castro in just a minute, I believe all of them were involved in the conspiracy. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about uh, Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, um, you know, sending you know, these guys out of the country and deporting them and all this stuff. So 
And there was a, a saying that this guy that I saw uh, on one of these shows, you know, you, you cut, if you want to get rid of a dog, you don't, you know, you don't cut his tail off, which to them would have been Bobby Kennedy. You cut their head, which would have been his brother, the president, to get rid of all this. So do you, do you think exactly. maybe they were they were sending a signal to both the Kennedy brothers? Well, I'm uh, sure. some background here, a little bit of background. Jo- uh, Joseph Kennedy, the, bro- the father of President Kennedy, had uh, met with Sam Giancana in Chicago before the election and right. had cut a deal with, uh, with, with Giancana. He told Giancana that if he helped uh, – deliver Chicago and Illinois to John F. Kennedy in the election, then Bobby would not bother the mafia. He'd leave him alone. And so it was like a, an unwritten deal where the mafia said, okay, we'll help your your son get elected, but just tell Bobby to leave us alone. And that was the deal. Well, of course, they did help JFK get elected. They swung Chicago and Illinois into Kennedy's column. That's why he won. Uh, right. But Bobby didn't leave him alone. He started going after him. And if you double-cross the mafia, you know, you know what's going to happen probably. You're going to get killed. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good thing. So didn't you would think that, you know, old man Kennedy, the father would have, you know, kind of told Bobby just, you know, lay. well, maybe he did tell Bobby just lay off and back off and all this stuff, but he just didn't do it. Um, you know, maybe Bobby was trying to make a name for himself or, or you know, something like that. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, it just it just seems like maybe, you know. The, the old man would have mentioned something to the boys, yeah. but I I could be wrong. You know, you would think. I want I to I want to talk about some evidence that links Oswald to the CIA that proves that sure. they had to be involved in this. Uh, yeah. There, there's a book called Russia? James Canyon. I'm sorry. Didn't didn't uh, wasn't when when Oswald was in the Marines? Didn't he go over to Russia and was like a double agent and then come back or something like that? Or am I spoiling your yeah. your talk? No, no, no. He defected. Okay. He allegedly defected to the Soviet Union, but the re- they now have found out that Oswald was on the payroll of the CIA. That came out recently in a book called JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. It's an excellent book. He interviewed a guy named Jim Wilcott, who was a CIA officer who worked with Oswald in Japan at the time they were uh, doing a defection program. And he told the author that uh, the CIA was involved in the assassination, that Oswald was recruited to go to Russia to pretend to be a defector to spy on them, which is very interesting. Um, other things that tend to point to the CIA with Oswald is that Oswald was seen in Dallas, Texas, in the weeks before the assassination, talking to David Phillips in a lobby of a hotel by another Cuban who was working with the CIA. He, he recognized Oswald later on and told the House committee that Phillips, who's the head of the assassination program for the CIA at the time, was meeting with, was talking to Oswald. Now, that's never been explained. What, why is Lee Harvey Oswald meeting with the top guy in the CIA who's in charge of killing people? Another thing that points to the CIA is Oswald supposedly went to Mexico City in uh, September of 63. Um, there's theories about whether or not he really went down there or not, but even if he was down there, there was another man down in Mexico City who was using Oswald's name because the CIA taped his phone calls and uh, recorded him on uh, surveillance cameras, and the, the House committee got a hold of all this, and the guy's never been identified. He's obviously not Oswald. He's a heavyset guy. doesn't even look like Oswald, but he's calling in to the embassies down there or saying, I'm Lee Harvey Oswald. Do you have any messages for me? The House Committee asked for the audio tapes uh, of those calls, and they were told by the CIA that they'd been erased. And then they found out later on that that was a lie, that they hadn't been erased, so they got a hold of them, they listened to them, and the man on the, on the audio was not Lee Harvey Oswald, you can tell. So here we have a guy down in Mexico pretending to be Oswald in the weeks before the assassination that's never been explained. Um, you know, what's that all about? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty wild. 
That is pretty wild stuff. Um, didn't they have like three or four different supposedly Oswalds? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I was going to get to that. Uh, there was a guy. Oh. Somebody was impersonating Oswald. That's, that's, there's no doubt about that. On November the second, right. Uh, right three weeks before the assassination, a man who claimed to be Oswald went to a used car lot and spoke with a salesman named Albert Bogart. He told the salesman that he wanted to buy a new car and uh, that he had been in Russia before, and they went for a drive. Well, the real Oswald didn't know how to drive, first of all, didn't have a license to drive. And so this guy was driving the car, going crazy, driving like 80, 90 miles down the freeway. And then Bogart said, you know, why are you going so fast, you know? And so they come back, and he said, do you want to buy the car? And the guy goes, no, I'm not going to buy this. Uh, Russian cars are a lot better. You know, the Soviet Union is a better place and all this kind of stuff. And my name's Lee Harvey Oswald. He said it several times, so he'd remember the name. And then he left. Uh, later on, of course, Bogart said that was not uh, the guy that was arrested was not Oswald. This was guy. Some of the guy looked like Oswald, was pretending to be him. Then on November the seventeenth, another man claiming to be Oswald went to a rifle range in Irving, which is a suburb of Dallas. This is like a, a week before the assassination, less than a week. He's firing a, a high-powered rifle, bolt-action rifle with a scope on it, and he's shooting at other people's targets. And one of the guys that he was whose target he was shooting at walked up to him and started an argument with him. And, the guy said, my name is Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'll shoot whoever I want to shoot at, and what are you going to do about it? And made a big scene about it and then left. And, and both times, the real Oswald could not have been at these places. Uh, so who is this guy saying he's Lee Harvey Oswald? What's he doing going around Dallas pretending to be Oswald? You know? Well, yeah, I mean, who would who would want to do that unless they want to, you know, throw people off the track or off the trail or right. whatever? Right. One of the biggest problems for the anti-conspiracy people uh, is the Sylvia Odio incident, which I want to talk about real quickly. Um, okay. This is very this is very disturbing. Uh, she's a she was a Cuban refugee. She lived in Dallas at the time, and with her sister, they had both fled Cuba to get out of Castro's area. Uh, three men showed up at her doorstep at her apartment one night in late September of '63. Two of them were Cubans, and one was an American. And she didn't let them in her apartment. She talked to them, uh, opened the door and a crack and talked to them. And she could see all their faces because they were under a light. And the leader introduced himself as Leopoldo, and he introduced the American as Leon Oswald. Um, Oswald did the same thing. He just stood there. But she got a good look at his face. And they were wanting mm-hmm. to raise money to fight Castro, and she told him she couldn't help him, and then they left. Um, the next day, or a day later, the guy calls her up on the telephone, this Leopoldo guy, and says, remember me? I was at your apartment. And she thought this was suspicious that he called her up all of a sudden. And he brought up Oswald on the phone. He said, what did you think about our American friend Oswald? And she said, well, I don't know. He didn't say anything. And then the guy goes off and says, well, uh, this guy, Oswald, he's a kind of a looney tune. And he's an expert rifleman, which he wasn't. Uh, and he said, Oswald says, we don't have any guts. We Cubans should have killed Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. And then he hung up the phone. And she got kind of scared because they were talking about killing President Kennedy, but she didn't think anything about it. And then when Oswald was arrested on the day of the assassination, she almost you know, went into shock because she said that was Lee Harvey Oswald who was at my front doorstep with those two kids that night. Uh, she testified for the Warren Commission. She testified for the House Committee, and she testified for Jim Garrison. She's never changed her story in 56 years. Um, so if she's telling the truth and it was Oswald, then we have concrete proof of Oswald associating with two anti-Castro Cubans in the weeks before the assassination talking about killing Kennedy. Wow. Holy macaroni. So, and and this woman is still alive? I believe she is. I would love to talk to her. I don't know how to find her, but I believe she's still alive and still lives in Dallas today. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be too cool. Um, wow. <laughs> 
I just don't know where to go after that. Um, now, <laughs> um, Jim Garrison, you mentioned Jim Garrison earlier. Um, now he was the lawyer. Now, wasn't he the only lawyer that ever got the, uh, like a trial or some kind of a investigation to as he, far as as a jury in court. He's the only uh, only district attorney that's ever uh, brought charges for a conspiracy yeah. to kill President Kennedy, and he he accused a man named Clay Shaw of being uh, involved in a conspiracy in New Orleans. I don't know whether Shaw was really involved or not. He was found not guilty by the jury, but uh, I tend to think he was had the wrong man. Um, I think he was just on to he was trying to prove a conspiracy and he really didn't have as much evidence as he needed. One of the key figures though in the in the uh, conspiracy down in New Orleans was David Ferry, who was a man who was portrayed by Joe Pesci in the movie JFK. Uh, mm-hmm. Ferry was an anti Castro uh, guy, hated Kennedy, talked about killing Kennedy several times, um, had actually met Oswald in New Orleans, and then Garrison was getting ready to arrest Ferry and have him charged with conspiracy to kill President Kennedy when all of a sudden Ferry ended up dead in his apartment in New Orleans, suspiciously. Uh, they ruled it a suicide, and Ferry supposedly had typed up two suicide letters but didn't sign them, and they were in the typewriter in his apartment, and they found that very suspicious. You know, why would this guy type up suicide letters? Most people write a suicide. They don't type it up. Yeah, And they right. usually sign it. So here's Ferry, yeah. a key person who dies all of a sudden. In fact, this leads into my next thing. I was going to talk about all these people who died suspiciously that were connected with this. Uh, he's one of the key ones that died suspiciously. Uh, one of the other key deaths was George DeMornschild, who um, was uh, ended up dead in his uh, house in Miami, Florida. Uh, Gaetan Fonzie, who was a ex, uh, who was an investigator for the House Committee, I actually met Fonzie in Dallas. He uh, told mm-hmm. me himself that he was sent down to Miami to interview DeMornschild. Uh, for the committee, and Dor Morshield knew he was coming down there and said, fine, I have nothing to hide. Come on down, I'll talk with you. Uh, Fonzie was like right almost to his house when he got a phone call from the uh, committee. People in Washington said, you might as well come on back because the Morshield just committed suicide with a shotgun. Uh, Fonzie told me that he didn't believe that it was a suicide. He said, I think the Morshield was killed before, the, before I could get to him, by mm-hmm. whoever wanted him dead. Uh, there's evidence that shows that there was a, a phone call that was made. Somebody called uh, an, a phone call on his answering machine, and they got a hold of the tape, and you can hear the beep, beep, beep of an alarm going off in the background. Then you hear a shotgun blast, which means somebody came into the house and set off the alarm and then killed DeMornshield, apparently. He made it look like a suicide. So it's very interesting. Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, who was a, a famous person, New York uh, journalist, she got an interview with Jack Ruby, the only private interview with Jack Ruby that anybody ever had. She got it in Dallas during his trial. Uh, she was in a room along, along with Ruby. She took notes mm-hmm. of what Ruby told her, and then she came back later and told her that she was going to blow the Kennedy case wide open because Ruby had told her a bunch of stuff. Um, she ended up dead all of a sudden from a drug overdose in her apartment in New Orleans, I mean in New York, and her notes were gone. They've never been found to this day, so we don't know what Ruby told her. But she died suspiciously. One of the real interesting deaths was William Pitzer, who was a naval commander uh, at Bethesda Hospital where the autopsy was done. He was in the Navy, and his job was to take photos of the uh, autopsy and film. And he told his family the night of the autopsy that Kennedy had been killed by more than one gunman, because he could tell from the wounds. Um, But he couldn't say anything because he he was under the Navy's control. Well, when he was about to retire from the Navy, uh, he ended up dead all of a sudden. Uh, suspiciously. He ended up uh, committing suicide supposedly in his lab there and uh, the gun that they found in his hand was in the wrong hand. He was like right hand they found the gun in his left hand. Um, 
his family says, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, he didn't commit suicide. He was murdered to shut him up because uh, they knew he was going to start talking. So he died suspiciously. Then during the investigation of the House committee, this is even better. Uh, Sam Giancana, the head of the mafia in Chicago, Johnny Roselli, who was another mafia guy, and Charles Nicoletti, who was a hitman for Giancana, all three of those men were being subpoenaed by the House committee to come to Washington to testify on the Kennedy case. All three of them were murdered within weeks of each other before they could get them to Washington. Giancana was murdered in his house by the mob. Roselli was killed in Miami and chopped up in a barrel and thrown in the bay by the mafia. And Nicoletti was killed in Chicago in a parking lot by the mafia. So all three of these mafia guys were killed by organized crime figures right before they were going to testify about the Kennedy assassination. Oh, wow. Now, see, I didn't, I knew that the, the Giancana and them was, was killed, uh, you know, afterwards, but I didn't know it was before that they had, before they were to testify. That is pretty wild and wicked stuff. So, I mean, how, if like Giancana was like a, the main guy, right? So who would have, uh, somebody must have had the guts to to go and do that. They wanted to do that. That's oh my god. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh uh, my god. I was also, also was going to talk to you about uh, at the scene of the shooting. Uh, Fifty four eyewitnesses who were standing there all said that the fatal shot came from behind the picket fence from a gunman who was positioned there. Uh, uh, Gene Hill, Beverly Oliver, Bill Newman, and Bill Frazier and James Tang, who I all have met, two of, several of them have yeah. died over the years, but uh, I talked with all of them. Uh, they all said that they heard a shot come from behind the picket fence near the railroad yards, um, and there's no doubt about that. Gene Hill ran up the hill to uh, catch the guy, and a man uh, put a chokehold on her and said he was an FBI guy and she couldn't get up there or go up there. An officer named Joe Smith ran up the hill immediately, a Dallas police officer. He was in the motorcade. He dropped his motorcycle and ran up the hill to catch the guy. He smelled gunpowder up in, right behind, behind the fence. Uh, where'd the gunpowder come from if nobody was up there? Uh, he found yeah. a man, or he actually encountered a man behind the fence who pulled out a Secret Service badge and said he was an agent. And so he let the man go and didn't challenge him. Uh, it turned out all oh, the legitimate wow. Secret Service agents went to the hospital. They didn't stay behind. So this guy was an imposter, whoever he was. Um, yeah. So here we, here we have a guy behind the fence who... Shows, says he's an agent for the Secret Service and then disappears. Uh, a man named uh, Sam Holland, who's deceased, was on the railroad overpass. He saw uh, the shot come from behind the grassy knoll, saw the smoke come now, off the knoll. He yeah, wasn't he the, the yeah, wasn't he the, was he the, the deaf mute guy that the cops no, didn't no, 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 even bother? Oh, that's, that's a different Hoffman. guy. That's a different guy. Oh, okay, so okay, okay. So Sam, Sam Holland ran behind to the fence immediately to catch the guy. And okay. it had rained that morning in Dallas, and the pavement was – there was no pavement back there like there was. That was all dirt. And he uh -huh. ran back there, and he saw muddy footprints where somebody had been standing behind the fence right where the shot had come from. Uh, so there's no question there was somebody there. Um, you know, the fact that there's, there's they... photos that show – go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, didn't they uh, police find a bunch of uh... – Oh, what they called uh, the the hobos? The when they're like three hobos yeah. or something? Yeah. 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 They found yeah, they found three men in the railroad cars. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure if they had anything to do with it. Over the years, the conspiracy people said, "Oh, these are three guys that were involved in it." But then yeah. they supposed the House Committee supposedly found out or tracked down all three of these people, and they turned out they were just innocent, you know, bombs that had nothing oh, okay. to do with the, the actual shooting. So, I think they put that oh, okay. to bed. But um, well, I was going to talk a little oh, bit. Wow. Go ahead. Um. Well, we've got about. 
five minutes or so left uh, for the show. Jack, we're just, there's just too much stuff to cover in an hour. We're going to have to make this two hours. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so one last thing, and then we'll get some info, and uh, we'll wrap the show up. So what, what other thing did you want to talk about real fast? Well, Oswald was seen in the lunchroom on the second floor 90 seconds after the shots were fired. And what's interesting about that is that uh, the elevators weren't working that day, so he had to come down four flights of stairs if he was the shooter. Uh, there was a lady named Victoria Adams uh, who was on the staircase at the time, and she would have seen Oswald, and she testified she never saw anybody come down the stairs during the time period that he was supposed to be there. So this is bizarre. You know, if he's up there, how does he get down without being seen? He's in the lunchroom. He has a Coke in his hand like nothing has happened. And... You know, that's what's always puzzled everybody is that how could this guy kill the president and be down in the lunchroom in 90 seconds and not be out of breath and not be nervous or anything? Well, he was seen in the lunchroom at 1215 by uh, a lady named Carolyn Arnold. The problem is outside at 1215, the witnesses remember looking up and seeing the time on the Hertz Rent-A-Car sign on the building, which is no longer there today. He would flash mm-hmm. the time and it was 1215, and they remember seeing a man in the sixth floor window with a high-powered rifle at the same time Oswald's in the lunchroom. So right oh, there, wow. you know, any defense attorney yeah. who's defending Oswald could prove that he's an he's got an alibi right there. There's, you know, he can't be in two places at once. So these exactly. are just some more uh, things that people need to be aware of that prove that Oswald couldn't have killed Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been so interesting, Jack. I'm telling you what, you you are just uh, amazing. It, I could sit here and talk to you all day, but we can't this time. But I want you to come back, and we're going to talk some more about this. We'll talk. Some more about um, now when they're when they're a lady in a polka dot dress and and all kinds of stuff that that we're going to get into next time. So I want you to come back if that okay. if 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 you want to come back and we'll see if we can get Doctor sure. Weck to come back as well and maybe put sure. you two as a tag team. That would be cool. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. I'm glad to um, do. Yeah. Uh, um, now your book, uh, the Black Mamba, you say will probably be out in the spring. I'm hoping it'll when be you, out in the fall. You know, in the fall. This fall. Okay. Late this fall. Okay. Um, and if they wanted to uh, maybe get a, a copy of that, do you have like a Black Mamba website or something that they can uh, get a hold of you at? We'll be we'll we'll be creating a website here pretty shortly to promote the book. We don't have one yet, but we're going to be building one, putting it up there. Oh, that'd be cool. Okay, and then you can come back and when that comes out, and we'll we'll talk more about okay, that. Yeah. But um, I want to thank everybody for listening and um, for Jack to come back. And uh, like I said, I can sit here and talk to you about this all day. Um, Jack's the guy. Jack and Doctor Weck. If you want to know anything or the majority of stuff about the assassination, uh, we need to to get a hold of Jack and. Um, you know, thanks for spending your Saturday afternoon with us um, right here on the show. And we're going to end the show with a clip from uh, President Kennedy's inauguration. And I think it, it, it sets a lot about the times we're going in now. So I want to thank Jack one more time for being on the show. And until next time, uh, Don, if you got that clip ready, let's do the clip, and we'll see you guys next time right here on Saturdays with Emma on BBS Radio. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe 
that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice, which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. been listening to Saturdays with Emma right here on BBS Radio Channel 1.